morning scripture reading will be from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 if you'd like to turn with me there 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 and I will be reading from the New King James Version for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, there is no doubt that we are living in a time when all things religious is being ridiculed throughout the world. There are those who uh, do not participate in that, but for the most part, when we look at at least what we're provided in in the written word or uh, on TV or whatever the case may be, you have people uh, ridiculing things that are spiritual. And those things that are spiritual are often overlooked and ignored for those things which are physical. And we even live in a time when it is hard to recognize as the truth the message that is coming out of the churches around the world. I'm not talking about the denominations around the world. I'm talking about the Lord's New Testament church. Sometimes those uh, congregations of the Lord's people have gotten off kilter a little bit. They've gotten off track and then you begin to hear things that are just not uh, in line with what the Bible teaches. Sister Barbara and I were talking a few moments ago about a particular writer out of Texas, and, and uh, you know, at one time he may have been sound and faithful, but he is a heretic now, and he is a false teacher. And that's happening more often than it's not happening in the world today. And even the messages uh, formerly preached by many of the denominations in the world have been changed here in the last several years. The the, uh, uh, embracement of homosexuality or the embracement of this socialistic mindset or whatever uh, it may be. You know, it it hasn't been that long back in February of last year that the Catholic Pope met with one of the uh, church or one of the uh, imams of the uh, Muslim religion. He met with him, and together they signed a historic declaration of fraternity. Now let that sink in for just a moment. The Catholic Pope and the Grand Imam of Al-Hazar signed a historic declaration of fraternity. That's not possible, according to the Quran. But then again... The Quran gives the authority for its adherents to lie or do anything else as long as it promotes the cause of their religion. Pope Francis and Sheikh Ahmed Al-Taib, they agreed to join the fight against extremism. doesn't simply make sense. But the point here is not whether or not Islam is is acceptable before God, which it's not, or whether any other denomination in the world is acceptable before God, which it is not. 
the point is even the, quote, infallible Pope has given in to politically correct culture that is now enveloping the world. They've changed it all. Not too long after he was put into office, Nicole and the girls and I, I think we might have been up in St. Louis, I can't remember, but we, when we're in a different place, a lot of times we will go and tour whatever the large uh, uh, temple is in that area, just simply to go look at the architecture. And, and it's interesting to see uh, a lot of the things that are inside their buildings. And I was speaking to one young man and asked him what he thought about the new pope. He said, well, I think he's really going to take the church in a more progressive way, and I think that's a good thing. Well, that's the idea uh, throughout the world, I believe. Not just in that particular denomination, but in most. Now, it isn't surprising for the Pope to do that. It's just simply a demonstration of how far things are going. No longer is the message uh, the cross. That's not what we're hearing out of a lot of places. We're hearing some kind of a social uh, uh, gospel but we're not hearing the message of the cross and all things that that entails, all the sacrifice that Jesus made to ensure that all the people of the world have an opportunity to uh, be saved. The message being spoken around the world is something foreign to the instruction, the moral fortitude, and the godliness of the written Word of God. It has changed. The message hasn't changed. The delivering of the message has changed. Now, it's hard to understand how people can get so far away from the message of God, but it happens. But how do we address those problems? It's one thing to state there is a problem, but if we're not going to try to address the problem, then why even bother to talk about it? But here is the, the, the truth of the matter, most likely. It doesn't matter what we do as individuals or collectively as the Lord's church, Particular religious leaders around the world are not going to pay much attention. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. That doesn't mean we stop. Is it futile? I don't think so. It might be in some cases, but we are not given the insight to know which case is futile and which case is not futile. So we have to continue to deliver the message of the cross and we need to speak about the necessity of the cross. That's the title of the sermon this morning. The necessity of the cross and, and how we are to lead others to it. So I want to talk about that this morning just for a few moments. And as we look at the idea of the necessity of the cross, which you're not going to see in a lot of the messages that are being preached and taught around the world, but it's still there. It's very necessary, but it's very necessary for a very particular reason. And I want us to discuss those things this morning, and I want us to begin with the preaching of the cross. That's our first point. First of all, the preaching of the cross, to most people, is a peculiar message, isn't it? It's a very striking message. Now, what we mean is, it is an attention-getter, isn't it? When you begin to talk about the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it will grab your attention because it's very different than what most people of the world uh, have, a, have a belief in. After all, the message is life out of death, right? 
That goes contrary to everything in the world that people believe in the physical realm, right? And so it's hard to translate that into the spiritual realm. But there is life out of death. The Jews looked for a Messiah who would come, who would throw off the yoke of bondage of the Roman Empire, get rid of the tyranny under which they lived, and allow them to be a world power again. They missed it, didn't they? They missed it. They missed the fact that the Messiah was going to be one who would suffer for the sins of the people, Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Now that's striking. They wanted a military leader. They wanted a hero who would come in and destroy the Roman Empire. Now that's not what they got. That's why they rejected him. The preaching of a bloody cross is striking to those who have never experienced what it can do. Paul said, those people say it's foolishness. That word comes from the same word from where we get our word moron. They think it is moronic to embrace the gospel of Christ. That's what the world believes. To the lost, the idea of trusting a suffering and bleeding Savior is in fact moronic. Why in the world would you do it? Do you remember what those at the foot of the cross mocked? They said, He can't even save Himself. Why would they want to follow after someone like that? The preaching of the cross is striking because it is brutal. It was an awful death. It was a death of absolute torture. See, we have to, we have to know those things. We have to talk about those things. We have to understand what the message of the cross is. And there is no way for any of us to imagine the depth of pain and misery and shame that the Savior endured while on the cross. Let's be reminded for just a moment what the crucifix, crucifixion entailed. The suffering of Christ began way before the nails were driven into His hands and His feet. He was scourged and He was beaten, Matthew 27. He was spat upon. Isaiah 50 tells us that the very hairs of His face, His beard, were ripped out. Can you imagine that? He was mocked. He was stripped naked. And finally, He was nailed to a piece of wood. He was put upon the the beam and dropped in place. The ancient Assyrians were the first to crucify their victims, but they simply just impaled a person on a, on a wooden spike and let him hang there until he died. It was the Romans, though, who perfected it. They would actually nail you to the cross. It would still take several days, most times, to finish off the crucified. But those truths don't even begin to scratch the surface of the suffering of Jesus. Words cannot properly convey the thing that happened to him. But that's all we've got. So that's the best we can do. To hear details uh, that we've just heard, it is striking. It'll grab your attention. But it is a necessary truth 
that has to be taught and preached throughout the world. Does God love the people of the world? Absolutely. But how did He demonstrate it? That's all part of the gospel. We can't change it to fit a more politically and culturally culturally, culturally uh, correct society. That's just not what we ought to do. So when we look at the preaching of the cross, the necessity of the cross, it's striking. But here's the beauty of it. Isn't it simple? It's so simple to look at it and to digest what God has left for us to do. It isn't clouded with pageantry and and splendor. It isn't an exercise and extravagance. None of that envelops the necessity of the preaching of the cross. It's simple. It's easy to follow. God doesn't require anyone to do anything beyond their capability. The plan of salvation is simple, isn't it? We do not have to jump through hoops. We do not have to offer sacrifice. We do not have to gather as a, as a physical nation on one day a week. We simply have to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, allow that to change our lives. We know that is repentance. Turn toward God instead away from Him. Confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. It doesn't get any more simple than that. See, the, the preaching of the, the cross is simple. The exercise of worship is simple. Being solely focused on the Godhood, not on an individual. We don't add things that are superfluous. We simply do what God has asked us to do. The simple message is to stop living in sin. Set the selfishness of Satan aside, embrace the love of God, and be obedient to what he's asked us to do. Brethren, that is simple. Ultimately, if that happens, here's what the faithful will hear. And this is toward what we work and what we live. Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. That's simple. Simple is better, isn't it? It is then that the saved will experience true extravagance. Words do not really depict what happened on the cross for us. We would have to see that physically with our own eyes because we're not used to that. But the extravagance and the beauty of heaven certainly cannot be appropriately described by the use of words. But we'll have to be there to enjoy it, to properly understand it. And that's our goal, right? The necessity of the cross can be seen in its preaching, but it can also be seen in its purpose. That's our second point. Let's return to simplicity. The purpose and the necessity of the cross is salvation, period. From the beginning of time, God has declared His love for people. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and John chapter 3. However, in Christ's death on the cross, it was at that point that God boldly declared His love for the world. Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the saved. He died for the ungodly so they could become the saved. In fact, the cross is simply 
God's statement of love to the world, John 15, 13. That's all it is. And there couldn't be a better one, could there? There was no way for God to demonstrate His love any greater than how He did it. We learn there's no other way to be cleansed from sin than through the actions that happened on Calvary, through the shed blood of that innocent individual, someone who was innocent and he took the place of the guilty, Hebrews 9.22. But isn't that how it's always been? That's how it's always been. We see that first in the garden, don't we? Genesis 3, verse 27, or excuse me, 21. And it continued on down through the days of the tabernacle and the temple. And innocent was given so that a sin could be covered. Now, of course, in those instances, sin was atoned by the blood of a sheep, a bull, a goat, a turtle dove, whatever the case may be. But it was the blood of an innocent that had nothing to do with the sin that was used to make atonement for the sin. The debt of sin owed by all people was settled if it was accepted. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. But it couldn't be those animals, could it? Hebrews chapter 10. couldn't be the animals because they didn't remove sin. They simply rolled it ahead. So there had to be something else, right? But once Christ died on the cross and that great love demonstrated by God, no longer did sin... Ho- uh, hang over the heads of the individual. They could get through sin, put it away, be forgiven, and live the life that God expected them to live. Let's notice verse 28, particularly in Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. He said, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin, Unto salvation. You see, it has to be accepted. Those who look for Him to come, those who look forward to His coming, those who are obedient to His commandments, those who are in the right relationship with God, who who live righteously or right living, they are the ones who will be ushered into the eternal abode. The simple person of the uh, purpose of the cross was salvation. But there's another side to salvation that you have to have. And so it's also the simple purpose of the cross, sin, to get rid of it, right? There's no need for salvation if there's no sin. But since Satan sinned against God, ever since he was cast down from heaven into the earth, it has been his business to try to cause as many people to lose their souls as he possibly can. And he's been doing it now for about 6,000 years. And he does it very well. He's good at what he does. He is in the business of convincing people to give up eternal life for the temporary pleasure of sin, Jude 5 through 8. That is what Satan desires, and that's his whole purpose. He wants to cause as many people to be lost as he can. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. However, when the purpose of the cross was fulfilled, when it brought salvation, when it destroyed sin, I believe Satan thought he won. 
He thought he won when Christ died on the cross. He's not God. He doesn't know the eternal plan. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. He knows what his end is going to be. Well, that's it. Instead, he lost, though, didn't he? And we won. We talked about that in class this morning. If you look in Brother Joe's Bible on the last page, Sister Marty wrote, We win because we've read the end. The necessity of the cross can be seen in its preaching, in its purpose, and finally it can be seen in its power. When the necessity of the cross is appropriated, wonderful things happen. Wonderful things happen. First, sin and hell are defeated, taken out of the way. It's gone. It's gone. When one is cleansed in the blood of the cross, that person is changed forever. The chains of sin are broken, Romans 6, 14, and he is made a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But here is the thing, and this is a very important thing. We have to keep this in mind. It is the new creature's responsibility to keep himself and to remain in the love of God, Jude 1, 21. How does that happen? How do we remain or keep ourselves in the love of God? And here's what the denominational world will tell you. What they will tell you is if you are saved, then you never have to worry about it again. Don't worry about ever losing your salvation because it's not going to happen. It's impossible to happen. Now, that's not what Paul said. Paul said in Galatians 5.4 that we can fall from grace, that we can lose our salvation. And so we have to be able to keep ourselves in the love of God. Jesus said this. I think when we add this to the statement that Jude made, we understand it a little better. John 15, beginning with verse 9. Even as the Father hath loved me, I also have loved you. Abide ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. By admonishing his readers to keep themselves in the love of God, human agency and salvation is clearly indicated. Can a person save himself or herself? Absolutely not. It takes the grace of God for anyone to be saved. We can't come up with salvation. We can't come up with a plan of salvation. But God did that. He offered a plan of salvation, but it is within human agency for a person to accept that salvation and to remain in the love of God. The necessity of the cross can be seen in God's provision of the sphere of salvation. He offers salvation, and it is the responsibility of all people to gain salvation and to keep it. We can give it away. To fail to do that, we exclude, will exclude one from the power of the cross. The power of the cross did more, though, than just defeat sin and hell. It delivered heaven to those who will grasp it. It's offered. 
It's right before us. The blood of the cross unlocked the gates of glory. It allowed access to the Father. It gave us an opportunity to live eternally in that place for which we all long. When the blood is applied and one uh, maintains contact with that blood, 1 John 1 verse 7, we are destined for eternal life in heaven. Now if we decide to step outside that light and no longer be in contact with that blood, we're not destined for heaven. It's all over at that point unless we come back. See, that's the second law of pardon, isn't it? We talked about the initial way into Christ through the plan of salvation, but the second law of pardon is just as simple. We repent of the sin, we confess the sin, whether publicly or privately, and we ask God to forgive us, and then we maintain, once again, that contact with the blood of God. That's the promise to the faithful, John 14, 1 through 3. And it is also the only way to get there is by the cross. That's the necessity of the cross. Each of us must continually examine ourselves. That's what Paul said. Examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. You know whether you're in the faith or not. We have to continually ensure that the blood of the cross continuously is applied to our souls. We make mistakes from time to time, but we have to overcome that. We simply have to overcome it and we have to be willing to do the things necessary to overcome it. If you stand in need this morning to answer the Lord's invitation whether through initial obedience to the gospel of which we spoke, being added to the Lord's church through baptism and maintaining a faithful life, or if you've done that and you've become unfaithful, you've fallen away, you need to come back. Do that through repentance of your sin. You may need to confess that publicly. If not, you do it privately. Ask God to forgive you. But either way, if you need to answer this Lord's invitation at this time, do that as we stand and as we sing.